Just before we get started, I want to share with you one of our sponsors and a secret to our success. I don't know about you, but I got into commercial property to build a more passive income. But how do you manage multiple clients and contracts in multiple buildings without spending all of your time on endless spreadsheets? After a lot of research, we use Office R&D, the best flexible workspace software to manage our CMO buildings, co-working and flexspace. For starters, the automated bill run saves hours of work and means we don't miss any revenue. Plus, I can get many reports on the performance of each product and location. But here's the real clincher. We all need to focus on customers more and our clients can now use our app to access buildings, book meeting rooms, review their invoices. And there's a great feature where they can interact with our member community. And this is all managed from within the Office R&D platform. There's a partner link in the show notes so you can book a demo. Take a look, see how the system can improve your operations and customer experience. Right, make yourself comfortable. Let's get on with today's show. Hello and welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. This is the show where we aim to demystify the world of commercial property investing and give you more clarity on how this asset class can work for you. There are loads and loads of strategies and niches, of course, within this. And as many of you know, our niche is sort of multi-let buildings, developing older buildings, in fact, into multiple occupancy buildings. And I'm really conscious that I certainly don't know it all, even in that niche, let alone across the whole asset class. So it's important to recognize really that we're not experts in every field, right? So today I'm really excited to bring along Kevin Jones of Tide Bank to discuss a different niche. So welcome, Kevin. Say hi. Hi. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show, Kevin. Generally, I'm really looking forward to this discussion because um, we're going to be delving into a topic that's really quite interesting to me, but something that I've, I've not done too much. I've done a little bit of industrial space but I've only redeveloped an existing building, not developed new. And I I know that you've been developing new. That was really your main strategy, which we're going to come on to. And I've been watching your progress, but also you've mentioned that maybe you're starting to look at redevelopment of existing, existing space, Kevin. So before we go into all that stuff, particularly before we go back to the start, what I want to do is just give people context of who Kevin is and where you are right now in terms of your journey. So maybe you could just tell us, just give us a wee bit of context of the sort of things you're doing right now, Kevin, in the world of industrial space. We're at the moment doing a variety of things, but all based around what we've done previously, but there's a few new new things coming in. But what we've done over the last few years, <clears throat> excuse me, is build light industrial units. So very simple, small, I, I call them just big gray boxes. So typically 100 square metres up to maybe 300, but rows of five up to 10 or 12 at a time. So what we try and find is a site of ideally an acre or more, but not too big, um, and to then go through the whole convoluted planning process to build light industrial units. And what seems to have worked is the demand is enormous for small owner occupiers and small businesses looking to find a way of establishing themselves in a good quality property. There's lots of, uh, I think some of it will be secondary, but I think it's more the tertiary, really back street, grubby, tatty units that people start off in and then try and move to something a bit smarter and tidier. So I think what we've identified is that 
the big developers who build huge industrial estates for Amazon and DPD have got it right. Great idea of having those big units, but they're huge and lots of money. Whereas we find locally, the smaller businesses want to buy their own small commercial property for 150 to 300,000 pounds instead of having a couple of buy to lets as an investment. They can put their own property or their own business in their own property and it gives them a, a really strong stable platform that they're committed to. Yeah so from a development point of view you're building out space and selling it to them but equally you're also keeping some for that demand too aren't you and, and it's interesting you mentioned that the numbers that are real I talk in feet I'm older <laughs> in my thinking so there's 1500 to 3000 square feet is kind of the size you're talking about isn't it and I think it's the same the whole country over. There is a, a lack of supply in that space, definitely. Where we are, there's continuous demand for it, for that size of unit. But you're really making it work with new stuff rather than offering older qualities or poorer quality stock. And you've managed to find that niche there where people are actually willing to pay. What, what's kind of your split between what you sell on and what you, you keep, Kevin? It's changed hugely over the last few years. So. My, my background is selling things. So when I first started, it was very, very simple. You build some and you focus on selling as many as you can. And the bits and bobs left over were the ones we kept, which actually is just daft because what's evolved over the last 10, 12 years is the plan is now much, much clearer. But we only came up with a plan last year. But for the first few years, it's very much... So, so with the first reasonable size development we did, we built 16 light industrial units, sold 12 and kept four. And just for convenience, we parked those four units in the pension. So they went into the SAS. So not a great idea because you're always keeping the bits you can't sell. Yeah. And that's evolved over the last few years to now we've got a much, much, much clearer strategy. Build a decent number of units, sell some, to people who pay a premium and keep as many as we possibly can. Because if, if you've got an owner occupier buying their business premises, they're not gonna negotiate over the last 25 pence per square foot or, or whatever. This is their new business headquarters for whatever it is they do. And that also leads on to the fact that you've got really good owner occupiers around your other stock who are all looking after it. Absolutely. And, mm. and that's one of the side benefits that we found by talking to the people locally who buy and run their business there, they've occasionally given me the nod of who not to rent our units to. <laughs> so uh, there's a memorable one uh, about two years ago, uh, we built a site down in Portland and I had two phone calls within 10 minutes saying, Kevin, what are you doing? But I, I won't give the guy's name, but that's, you don't want to do business with him. And I was like, okay. And, and the two people who did it, I both spent a lot of money on the units. They finished, finished them off really, really well. They're both smart local businessmen, and I just had to listen. And as it turns out, it's a good choice. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so before we delve, because I've got a few questions around that, before we delve into that, though, let's go back to the start. Okay, so I know you've had your own business um, for a long time. You've had your own business and different ideas, and as you said, they're selling things. When you actually got started in commercial, or in property did you go down the traditional route of you know maybe buying some residential investing or did you actually go straight into commercial because of perhaps an internal demand for your own business space or how did how did that start um it 
probably just because I'm contrary, because all the advice I'd had from my first wife's parents and their family and my own family was, you want to buy your own house, you don't want to mess around with this other stuff. And we'd rented offices and, and a little production unit in London. We'd had a very bad experience with the unit we'd rented in London, which was immaculate. But the risk with the landlord of what they could do to us when we moved out really alarmed me. Um, I won't say who the landlord is, brilliant bloke, very famous, but we were, the, the, the people who rented the unit next door had four desks in an office for six months. Yep. Their, their license expired, they moved out, they got, a, it might have been a lease, I can't remember, but they got a dilapidation bill for 18,000 yeah. pounds. We're in a, a 3,000 foot unit next door and we've done a lot of damage. We had big black and white laser printers, there was toner on the carpet, we bumped some of the ceiling tiles and we thought this, we're going to be in for many tens of thousands. So we went all out to clean the building up and make sure it's clean and tidy, changed everything so we didn't get a big bill. But as we were moving that, that business from London down to Portsmouth, I saw a building and thought, that'll do. Let's, let's go and buy it and figure out what to do. And it turned out really, really well. We, we bought an office, office block, and moved a production company into it, our telesales team into it, and it just worked. And it was just really easy. Um, so the first commercial property mistake I, I made was in that building. And that was, you paid VAT on commercial property. Yeah. I didn't know that. So we bought a 425,000 pound building and I forgot the VAT. So we came to completion. It's like, oh, Kevin, we need some more money. Oh, a bit tricky, but we winged yeah. it. But it worked out really, really well. Was that building oversized and you let some, or did you then, because there's a difference between occupying your own and then bringing in tenants. So okay. where was that change? Um. I would like to pretend I'd thought it through that carefully, but we need we we were renting offices on the same estate, so we knew that we could fit the business onto the ground floor. We knew that we wanted to bring our production business from London down to Portsmouth. The bit that made the deal work was the, the tenant on the top floor of this building was prepared to pay £75,000 to move out. I thought, that, that sounds okay, I can cope with that. <laughs> We bought it for uh, four twenty-five and got seventy-five grand back straight away. Nice. Um, we then figured out how to chop it up and, and rent some space, but the build the business we're in grew quite quickly, so we just filled it up. Um, but we were selling color printers. The, the color printer and IT market was going through the roof, so it was it was a good place to be. We I didn't overthink it. Just that'll do. Let's move there. Crack on. Yeah. So it wasn't, you weren't really thinking, right, um, I'm going to go and start investing in property because I want cash flow and all this sort of stuff. This was, there was a requirement there for your own business. But at some point you obviously made a switch. Yes, you obviously because, thought, right, I'm going to, I'm going to start this as a strategy. What, what happened there? Well, we moved into um, the, the new building and the business was going really well. But the building next door came up for sale. And as I'm not very good at detail, I pretty much forgotten that in my mid-20s somebody set up a thing called a SAS. I had no real thoughts about it and we were just parking money in it occasionally we'd borrow some back to the business but there's enough to buy the office block next door so I then I began to think about it a bit more carefully that if we buy that building we can expand into it or we can rent the ground floor or we can put just chop it around 
But actually, that was a really nice deal. It was a, an office block with nine self-contained units, only small, 700 square feet each. But we found a couple of tenants, we moved some of our telemarketers in there, and it just sort of worked, but it was parked in the pension. So there's, there's a whole story behind the SAS pension. I must be one of the people in the country who's had a SAS longer than anyone. <laughs> it's only about the last three or four years I've actually started to <laughs> have you used i mean has sas become a, a major part of your finance for your deals um i was about to say yes but we've only done it once because right. one of the podcasts i listen to people with a sas are trying to lend money to other people to develop no no we build things as joint ventures with our sas so some of the developments we've done recently in the last few years um there was one in farnham in surrey we built five decent units and put one in the SAS. And we've been doing that now. We're just So in Portland, we built 10, put four in the SAS, built 16. Put, and it was just a way of parking some money. Yeah. But we then found we could take out mortgages. There's a little bit of, um, not, not, I think you can't really go much beyond about 35% loan to value if you're using all the money. But it's beginning to work really, really well. So good. The, the, the SAS, I think, has got 11 or 12 light industrial units with a, a decent mortgage, but the income just falls through the door. Yeah. You send out the invoices once a quarter. I know, I know all the customers and talk to them. Um, generally, they pay on time. So we've had COVID caused a few hiccups, um, but really small hiccups. So I'm, not, I'm now going from the past back to, to the current. The Perception I get is that lots of landlords have had a, a real struggle with, with COVID. What we found is we just talked to all our customers and the ones who were struggling, we took them from quarterly payments in advance to monthly. Yeah. Not really doing that much of a favour. And more most of the time now our customers are on time. There's a couple of people are still a bit late, but their businesses have been wrecked, but they're still carrying on with the rent. So we probably have four customers are paying a bit slower than they used to out of 40, 42. So it hasn't affected us very badly. But if you listen to what's going on with landlords on the high street, they're wrecked. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's really important to understand context, isn't it? And that the conversation in the Sunday Times or on the news or on an app somewhere about how terrible the commercial market is, is usually referring to one sector okay. in yeah. one high street somewhere that isn't related to your own local market. You know, and, and a lot of the time we've been on Clubhouse, Kevin, we've met, seen each other on Clubhouse. And sometimes the discussions are based around macro stuff around the whole industry. And you're like, well, that's really, it's all nice, but it's got mm -hmm. nothing to do with what's happening 300 yards down the road from where I live, because yeah. the local demand is just completely different, isn't it? And I think yeah. when, when you're talking about investing yourself, your own money and your own time, it's a totally different thing than talking about the market in general or what funds are investing in or all that sort of stuff. Because actually on our sort of level, um, it's much more to do with what's going on locally and identifying where the gaps are, which you've obviously done with the industrial stock down where you are. I mean, it's critical, isn't it, to make sure that you're assessing it correctly without taking on board everything that the national press are saying, because it can totally <laughs> lead you down the wrong path. So... Let's just move on one step because there was a difference between buying a unit next door to a unit you've kind of been using for your own business, right? And then letting out a couple of spaces to actually developing. 
because there's, there's three parts to this, isn't there, to any of these commercial ventures. One is the investor, whether that's your SaaS, your own money, other people's money, whatever. Then there's developing. That's kind of like a separate thing. And then there's operations, if you keep it. And so in our business, we, in, we invest in property, we redevelop them, and then we operate them. But you don't have to do all three. You can choose to do just development, just operations, just investor, all three. And at some point, you've gone from investing and doing a little bit of kind of refurb to actually developing units. You stepped. So can you talk us through that next stage? What happened there? Because that's a big step. It, it, it was. I was. I was very lucky. So uh, an agent who I, I knew very well um, was aware that we were looking to invest in commercial property. This was after I sold my businesses and just said, I know who you need to talk to. Why don't you talk to, to Barry? okay and Barry had built industrial units and was a quite seasoned and experienced and knew what he was doing but he didn't have any money I just sold my businesses and had some money and didn't know what to do with it and Barry had a site that the bank I was with at the time I told them about it they said oh no 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 there's nothing going on down there you'd be mad to invest that's familiar <laughs> um, well I can't remember how much we built down there now, but I've had seven different developments in the same area. We got planning permission on a petrol station there yesterday. I've got a planning application for nine waterside workshops and a drive-through to a place that the bank said, oh, you don't want to go near that. So Barry had the same problem. He couldn't get funding. But what we did, we, we structured it really, really easily. About 1.4, 1.5 acres of, of, of site. Bit of an odd shape uh, next to a helicopter runway. But... We could just see that we could build a certain number of units and i started getting quite interested in this because you could use lego to model an industrial estate you print out the site and then move the bits of lego around thing oh, work. so my architectural skills are really rather well honed with 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 lego but we we decided to build 16 units um and then i said to barry the only bit i can do in this obviously apart from the lego was i sell stuff so leave it to me We'll, we'll crack on and see if we can sell some. And I ran around like a lunatic, did, did a bit of direct marketing, um, very simple stuff. But when we came, so we started construction in the August, um, maybe July. And we'd finished construction by Christmas and we're just tidying the sites up in January. By the end of February, we'd completed sales of 11 units and four were jointly developed with our SAS. So those four went straight into the pension. We had one left to sell, which didn't sell until May. And, and I was really disappointed that I'd had this three month period with an empty building I couldn't sell, but eventually we sold it. Then I looked back and thought, actually that's, that's not so bad. Yeah. There, there, there weren't, the fees from the agents were quite low because they hadn't actually done any deals, but they'd helped guide me along along the path and so we paid some commissions out lower than the normal but i'd done the deals and i then thought this is pretty straightforward i know what it is we're building i've got a i can get a computer generated image of it that's enough to sell something off plan and that i think is the little usp we've got is that we sell off plan so the product doesn't exist but we've got the pre-sales in place, which then makes the funding relatively straightforward. So do you, because do, often your units are terraced. Mm -hmm. So do you, 
and purposely build like a terrace of three. So you might you might pre-sell some, but effectively start that process of you might be speculatively building the last one, but hoping by the time it's finished, it's occupied. But you're not going in and developing all 16 units. You're actually just developing phases. Do you tend to do it that way and pre-sell um, some? On some bigger developments we've done in the last few years, we have done them in phases. And that was just primarily because the way we were buying the land um, was very convoluted. So we've found our own little niche in buying land from government bodies. And uh, the Homes and Communities Agency has since become Homes England, and they prefer to make sure the developer really does build what they say they're gonna build. So we exchange contracts, but we can't actually buy the land till we finish building on it. So wow. we don't own okay. the land, we're building Can't sell it. <laughs> it's, and getting funding to a fund who wants a first charge on the land, you can't. Yeah. So we, we've had some very creative ways of getting funding for the developments, but it's working. And I've now got a reasonable reputation with a couple of people at Homes England that if we say we're going to do something, come hell or high water, one way or another, we'll, we'll get it done. Um, and, and that, I think, is, a, is something that stands you in good stead with people you're working with is they learn to trust you and see you as a safe pair of hands. Yeah, it's not overnight, is it? It does take time to build these relationships. So you actually then went into a JV with somebody to start doing developing. Somebody yeah. who, forgive me, but somebody who knew specifically how to do that element yeah. of the work, you were really good at the sales side and, and potentially raising the finance. So that was a good partnership. Has that partnership continued or have you well, developed on yeah. yourself now? Um, there's a couple of things went slightly wrong. So I, I figured out what it was that Barry knew and once I figured it out, that was pretty straightforward and we were going to carry on and do more. But it became clear there's a couple of people in, in the loop somewhere who are getting some, just topping their bills up slightly and some money was going sideways to, to Barry, probably. Wasn't and, as transparent and, as you like. I just felt yeah. uncomfortable about it. Yeah, okay. I started digging around the numbers and think, that seems too much. Um, but what it, what, what it did was it gave me the confidence that actually this isn't that hard. And you need to have the money organised. You need to have the marketing and, and the planning and all these things in place. But once you've organised it, that's pretty straightforward. And I think from my background about running an IT company and, and my wife being the most organised person I know in the world. Um, so she used to work for me in, in business. She's got a, a master, uh, an MBA. Brilliant. She, she did a, uh, an MBA, 190 pages. The company funded it. She gave it to me to check, so I just looked at it, right here, went to page 190 at the end, right, that one. So <laughs> she did all the hard work, but, the, but this was exit strategies for the small to medium-sized business owner. So I went, right here, yeah, that one and that one, that became our exit strategy for the business. That's Sorry, that's a random diversion. But, but we had these complementary skills that I could figure out how to do it, and then Vanessa could make sure we did it, and it, it, it worked. Some of so, your units you've got there, behind you because you've got some great images there there is not a cookie cutter one have you have you started doing a cookie cutter or um are you still going for individual sites with different style what we what's going we're going for cookie cutter because it's okay. a lot quicker and easier so, so what we found is um we built a building we called it hermes building so it's 100 meters long 12 units and the demand for that was really really high but it was a hundred, uh, a thousand to eleven hundred square feet units, 
all with allocated parking. It was a grey box, uh, double doors, sectional doors, um, grey roof, two different tones of grey, so uh, we were quite creative. Anthracite, <laughs> plumbing, so just a grey box. That since became uh, Navigator Park, which was 12 units we built in three buildings. Uh, Victoria Park was a terrace of five. They're all variations of grey boxes with pedestrian access, sectional door, maybe first floor windows, but that's about it. Um, so from, from the things we've done in the past, every time it was reinventing the wheel. So the architect would come up with a different design, different layout, uh, different materials. Now we're trying to stop that. Yeah. Um, even to the point now when I'm, I'm briefing uh, Tim, the, the architect we work with, I want to say, right, uh, on this site, we want an invincible building and two Hermes because we built a building called Invincible that is 2,000 square meters and it's 16 units and Hermes was a different format, but it made it very easy to say, oh, oh, by the way, can you put two Junos at the end? And a Juno building had to be quite small. Right, um, nice. So when you're talking to um, planning as well, you can just direct them to, here's my other development I've done down here. You can see the example of how it works. And from your point of view, you've got much more control over the costs. I guess the cost that's per normal for development that is slightly tricky because it's site by site is the underground cost. It's the getting, getting, getting to the point where you can actually, once you've got out of the ground, the costs then are a bit more um, familiar. Yeah. Have you, have you had any interesting challenges with groundworks? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> um, on one of the sites we bought, the, the vendor, a government body, issued a mass of paperwork and forms. And when we, when we found the radiation, <laughs> that I hadn't nice. noticed and nobody else had noticed. I phoned the guard and said, there's, there's radiation here. We've got to get rid of it. So yeah, at page 1,378, you know which page it's on. Oh yes. So, so we, we'd missed it, but it was on a, 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 an old airfield where yeah. hurricanes used to fly out over the Second World War. When the pilots couldn't see the dials, they'd take the dial off, go out the back door, scrape all the paint off. And in the olden days, it was luminous paint. But now it's radioactive waste. So there's all these little hotspots. Um, and that that was a challenge. So we'd missed it. We had to pick up the bill. Um, the bill would have been 45 to 50,000 pounds to clear it, except we had to be monitored by nervous Tristan, who was employed by the government body, who arrived in, with full hazmat kit in the back of his car to monitor the guys I had clearing the yeah. radiation out, who were there with a whacking great tarpaulin and a JCB. Yeah. So to clear this radiation, you, the JCB digs the stuff out, sticks it on the tarpaulin, spread it out, wave a garlic counter on, oh, there's a hot bit, plonk it in the tin. But Tristan, bless him, hadn't done this before. So the first bit he found, he said, right, shut the site, take away and test it. We know what it is. No, 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 test it. Three months, one more time. So it then cost 80,000 quid to clear the radiation out of the way. Nice which was fine because we budgeted for that. What we hadn't budgeted for was finding 180 tonnes of crushed asbestos roofing sheets oh. all around it. <laughs> so that was another £70,000 to, to get rid of that. So it's a bit of a surprise. Capital um, allowances on that though. There was, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think the, the lesson there, another lesson was be careful. Just look and think what might That's... go wrong. It's what's underground always seems. I we, we speculatively built a house and all the profit on the house went into getting the, the substructure out of the ground. <laughs> From then on, we knew the cost, but by then we'd spent too much money. Yeah. 
Um, but with, with, with the, the costs of this stuff, it was quite a big industrial estate. So it actually cost a few thousand pounds per unit. Per unit yeah. So we didn't make as much as we'd have liked to have done, but this was the first time we really focused on changing our business model from sell as many as you can and keep what's left to sell some only to owner occupiers who are gonna value the property and want to be there and keep as much as you can. Brilliant. And that's worked really, really well. Okay, so um, just a technical question then. What what sort of price now that you're cookie cutting are you managing to get your bill cost to per square meter or per square foot? Um, it's, it's tricky, but um, I, I tend to work from what can we sell it for and then yeah. work back and then see if it see if it stacks up. A thousand pounds a square meter. Yeah. Or okay. Eighty five to ninety five pounds a square foot. And one of the problems I've got with that is that's based on real looking back at jobs we've done. The problem I have is quite a few agents, when putting a value on a development, say, oh, industrial units, that's £65 a square foot. Okay. But how many units are there? Have they got three phase and there are walls? Yeah. Because what's that? Oh, it's not an exact science at all. Yeah. Let's let's not go to the severe thing. (laughs) At least not yet. But, but on, 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 the, on the sites we, we started selling, we were selling um, 2010, probably at a thousand pounds a square foot. Within 200 meters of that site, we've got units that are now 1400 pounds a square foot, but they're, they're on the same site, pretty similar buildings, um, almost identical actually. Um, so the, the, the retail price has increased and more locally where we are in Hampshire, we have been selling at £1,500 a square metre, I think, and, and, and we've got huge amounts of demand. I, I think 16 1650 yeah. a metre as a sale price is looking very likely. Um, yeah. The land costs are going up as well. Well, yeah, I was going to say, and the land, because then if we're talking about geography, land cost will be different, won't it? So I suspect a piece of ground up with us is probably a bit more, um, less cost than yours, but the build cost shouldn't be, too big a difference once you've got your cookie cutter style as a developer and you've worked out you know what you can build it for yeah. and, and then it's really just a case of consistently trying to to make that more and more efficient isn't it that's the, yeah. the process and, and i think another thing i've learned probably from barry who originally helped me was to get really good people who know about contracts so uh, phil and sam look after this now and it takes all the grief away from me so phil is, is a godsend he, he he built the siren sester bypass he did, did a big bit of the channel tunnel um he's done all sorts of architectural things in castles so he's got wide experience um and i call him grumpy phil so he gets all the heat from the contractors and they think i'm a nice bloke so i'm <laughs> prodding phil saying oi give me telling off so and is phil is phil man- managing individual um effectively subcontractors or have you got a management contractor in the middle there what we prefer to do is have a main contractor that does the whole lot yeah phil will prepare the documents to to go out to tender and normally we've got an idea of who we want to work with but we'll if there's two or three people we know and work with we might tender or pre-tender to five or six in total because what i don't want to do is to waste time from the contractors on a job they're not going to get yeah. so we'll push, push the job out to five or six people and once they come back and say yes we're interested then we'll probably go to three and make sure they know we're going to three 
And when you're phasing developments, how do you approach the contractor with that? Because obviously they're going to give you a price, or you, I, I say obviously, I'm assuming you're going to go for a fixed price on that first phase, but equally you're going to talk about, are you going to get them to price the following phases, or are you going to just talk to them about the fact there will be following phases? Um, What's I your tend, tactic? Uh, I tend to just do them all in one go. So, for example, one of the sites we did near where I live now was, so we, we call it site A, so quite inventive. We did it in four phases, but it was very much start and just carry on. Okay. So, yes, it was four phases, but there were seven, seven buildings, might be eight. So they just started building, got those ready. In the meantime, the foundations were going in some others. And then once they got the steelwork up, they start the foundations in the last phase. So they went through in three or four phases. But in total, from start to the end of the first phase was seven months. Start to all phases completed was 15 months. So the contractor worked through the whole thing. Right. Okay, brilliant. Okay. And, you know, I'm, I'm conscious that actually, Kevin, you've actually built a lot of units now. When, when, when did you sort of, when was the first development of new space? Okay, the, the first accidental one was from the building I bought to move the company into. I then thought, I know, I'll build our own building. So right. went out, found a plot of land and thought, right, we'll build something there. And it worked. And that, in fact, is probably what persuaded me to stop running an IT company with 70, 80 people in it, or, or whatever, to thinking, hang on, I've just built this 12,000-foot um, office block, two industrial units, taken a building that we haven't knocked down and converted into Greg's first um, sandwich bar on industrial estate. And I've done it with, at best, three-man days of my time in a 15-month period. And all I've done is look through the fences every now and again. Then I looked at them and thought, I've made a lot of money out of that. I've not done anything. So as an architect, main contractor, all these other people went and did it. And the bit that was quite curious was, I didn't put any of my own money in. Yeah. Um, and this is quite a long time ago. Um, NatWest, who are funding it, to put, put the strategy together and said, this is how much money we'll lend you. What they didn't say was I had to put my money in first. So I didn't. <laughs> so we used their money. And they're much, much tighter now. They're, they're <laughs> but by the time we got to towards the end of the development, the, I, thought, I think it was 1.4 million we had from, from NatWest. We needed another 200,000. That was when they realised I hadn't put any money in. I said, well, we need more money. <laughs> we got the other 200,000 at a punitive rate of interest, I hasten to add. Um, but we got through it all. And then when it was finished, we had, we pre-sold the big industrial unit, the office block, my company moved into the first floor. We were going to extend into the ground floor eventually, but I, I let that quite easily. Um, Greg's had rented a sandwich bar and the other two units were rented very quickly. So within six months of finishing this first development and three or four days of my time, I had the full estate built, managed, occupied, occupied ready to go, producing this, this was, now correct me if I'm wrong, was this back in 2003, 2004, that sort of time frame? Yeah, so that's really when I got started as well. Yeah. So if you look yeah, at the picture one. behind me, yeah, that one, that, that was the first building I built. Yeah, and nice building. It's very similar to others in Hampshire that other people have built. So yeah. the same architect. Very nice building too. So we've moved through a few developments, quite a number. Um, and again, I'm, 
there are similarities a little bit in that we, we did our first one in 2004, but we didn't actually do the next one until 2009 when things started changing in the economy, which I think was kind of when you started doing your next one, wasn't it? And But then you really went into production mode. You've done quite a lot of units over the, over the subsequent years. Over the last three or four years, yes. But, but there's been a, a huge change in focus. So having done some development, I got a little bit of education, which I thought might be quite a cunning plan. So I learned some stuff realized that there's really basic things I wasn't doing. We changed from building and selling to build and keep as much as we can. Simple change, but it's worked. And, and it's worked really, really well. To the point the development we finished in September last year, we've kept all five units. Simple. We've got all right. the money back. So it owes us nothing. Oh, the mortgage is about the same as we spent on it. So happy days. What 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 changed or did anything change in the finance for that that's really the trick you need to to get around isn't it to be able to keep so a lot of people think in resi too they think well i'll, I'll need to keep flipping um rather than being able to hold because i haven't got the funding or whatever was there anything in particular change for that or was it just you'd got a bit more critical mass by that time momentum it's a really good question um i think what changed was i been too cautious with borrowing development funding. So we would put all of our savings in, then the development funding, I'll take just a little bit less than we really needed for a shorter time than we probably needed. So there's always this tension yes. at the end of the development where we just needed another 100,000 whatever to, to, to finish off. And I think I've learned that lesson, whereas now the development we're just, just starting, um, the development funding is in place day one. So and hopefully we'll complete on this purchase tomorrow. But all the development funding is agreed. It's more than we need. And, but, but that's something I was very reluctant to do because I'd look at the rates and think, 1%, 1.5% fee, and I don't need all that money. Right, well, we'll have a little bit less than we need. And then it all goes wrong at the end. Um, so yeah. I just thought for sanity and peace of mind and being able to sleep, just borrow a bit more. It's so you're borrowing, borrowing development finance to get the building the the development done and then at the end the back end of that you're either putting some into SaaS or refinancing on a on a more long term yeah so, so having that clear exit is something i've also learned um we're gonna pray oh we'll sell some i can sell stuff i don't do that anymore now the the development we hope to uh, complete on tomorrow we sh we've already started to figure out who the exit fund funding is with and what we need to have in place we've got the valuation done we, we know we're going to build and it'll probably be that the total cost of buying the building, the development is what we'll get as a 65% loan to value mortgage. So yeah. everything above free. Brilliant. And just another little stat just for people to kind of, I guess, um, give them a bit more context. What, what is the kind of um, ROI you would be hoping to get on a development if you were keeping it? Um, and I'm not talking about the money, you know, sometimes people in Resi talk about, well, the return investment on the money I put in. Well, you only put in a thousand pounds, so no wonder you get 100% return investment. <laughs> the only true measure is the full building value. Not necessarily maybe the value that it's measured back against, but the value you've actually spent on it, you yeah. know, because otherwise the yield's always going to be the standard market yield, isn't it? If you're valuing it, if you're based on the new value, but based on the money that you're investing in a development and you keep it, what, what's the... ROI that you're hoping to achieve? Um, I can't answer that directly, 
but I'll tell you something we've changed. So being an optimist, when I first started looking at it, I think, oh, we spent this, made that, and we're getting 50% return on capital employed. Not all that sounds brilliant, but it wasn't really a good measure. So what we, we now do is we develop in the development uh, Devco. Thank you very much. Uh, you, you, you gave me those. those so develop <laughs> development company, and we then transfer it to the investment company at cost. So there's not necessarily any great profit, but once it's in the investment company, we value it for mortgage purposes. Yes. That's the value we look at. So right, okay. all, the, all the, 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 the fresh air profit, we ignore that. So typically we're looking at a seven and a half to 8% yield on value. Full development value. For yeah. It can get better if you look at the, at the, the pretend capital employed that then we're depending on loan to value more in the, the low teens so 12 13 that sort of end if we then factor in what it really cost us then the returns are, are, are very good yeah so that that's yeah that's where i struggle a bit with normal ways of valuing these things is that often a multiple of let's say 10 is applied so therefore the yield is going to be 10 percent. but actually that million pound building only costs you six hundred thousand. Through, through buying it and redeveloping it. So actually the return on investment on your 600,000 is a completely different figure. So for us, we, we really try and make sure that developments we're doing on that, that purchase and redevelopment is really giving you at least 20% ROI, ideally more than that. But if you went to the normal matrix, yeah, it would be 10 or eight or whatever it is that the current severe thinks it should be. Yeah, so, so I think on, on full market value, seven and a half to eight percent is where yes. we are. But on a real numbers based, not on cost, we're in so that 11, 12, 13. Yeah. We based it on real cost, it's 20, 20 plus. And yeah. If it's a deal we put together that's, that's really cheeky, the return on capital employed is infinite. Yes, uh, of course. I haven't, haven't done many of those, but uh, I'm, I'm working on it. It's a, this is one of the, the things I picked up from my training. Yeah, from your training, yeah. Okay, brilliant. So let's just talk, we've talked, we've kind of brought ourselves up to this, the current, we've nudged into the future a little bit. Some of the things that we spoke about offline before this, which is you started off with redeveloping, then you went into pure development, and now are you starting to edge back a little bit into looking at some of the older buildings as well and redevelopment? Well, this is one of the problems with listening to podcasts. You listen to them and think, wow, that's a really good idea. And I was listening to one driving around that some guy who speaks a lot faster than you, I'd say about one and a half times faster than you, <laughs> voice, um, was talking about taking tired buildings and repurposing them. Um, I thought that's so obvious because if it's going to cost me a thousand pound a meter to build a big shed, I can buy existing ones for 30 pounds a square meter. Okay, the big sheds might rent. I'm going to go back to per feet now, rented 10, 11, 12 pounds a square foot, but a refurbished small shed is seven or eight pounds a square foot. Hmm. The numbers work. The big change for me is these buildings exist and you don't have to wait to go through planning and all, all that sort of stuff. So the, the deal we're, we're working on right now that, well, I hope we complete on, on Friday because the fences are up, the skips arrive, the, the, <laughs> the roof comes off a week on Monday, so we really do, must complete <laughs> on Friday. So the, the deal like that is, I only saw the building in November last year, went for a walk round with, with the guy who owns it, um, 
sidestepped the agent um, because they were just not, not allowing me to talk and just looked at the building. I then understood the problem of the guy who owned the building. I said, have I got a cunning plan for you? So we're now working on a JV together. Nice. So he gets all the money he would have got for the building as a wreck and he'll own 50% of the company that will own the refurbished building. So he's delighted. I'm delighted because it's his money. And I get half the finished building. Yes. And what I do is the bit I enjoy doing anyway. <laughs> so that, that, that I'm going to do a lot more of that because it's so much quicker and easier to find a tire building, do something else with it. The slight challenge is finding them because all the offices, the price has gone through the roof. Everybody's converting to residential, but for tired industrial, there is some opportunities. Yeah, the, the, the model, the actual um, buildings might be slightly different now, but the model still remains, doesn't it? And, and it's funny, you look at, I've, at some buildings I've bought, they might cost, well, let me put it a different way. There was a building I didn't manage to get that was near one that we have, and I've been tracking it for ages. And unfortunately, the agent, <laughs> we're, we're aging into that again, the agent didn't tell me it was going into an auction. And my, I should have known it was going into the auction for, through tracking, but nevertheless, it went to auction. And it probably cost one and a half million quid to build this building. It was in a tertiary location, but it was with a bit of investment, uh, a grade A office building. It was a good office pavilion. And it sold for 185,000 pounds at the auction. Now it didn't have a tenant, right? And the company that bought it probably spent maybe a couple hundred grand on it. But if somebody came along and built another one on the plot next door and it cost them two or three million pounds, immediately you're in a more competitive advantage. It's just, it's such a good way to future proof because you're not having to compete so so much with that higher price because you need a higher price because the price you've paid for it. Yeah. It's, quite, it's, quite, it's quite interesting when you look at the numbers, yeah. And, and that's why I've really struggled with building you. And part of the reason why I really want to have this conversation is because you're obviously making a success of making, building and developing new units. Um, and, and we're going to carry on doing that. So yeah. we've got some quite interesting schemes we're, we're bidding on, quite quite big, some of them, which is quite, quite scary. But I think we're in a good position. Well, I, I know of all, all the sides we can sell half of whatever we build without any shadow of a doubt. So if I then get to keep the other half, and so we're looking at a, a huge development, which is in square feet is 220 odd thousand square feet, but that'll be over four years. So it's not to build some sheds and clear off. There, there's yeah. another um, smaller site that's four acres and we'll build 20 small sheds in one go. That, that's in an interesting location as well. Um, and then uh, back back down in Portland, where I built loads of things. Um, we're looking at another site to build 16, 12 units. But I've got, because we build in the same sort of areas, I've got a list of people who are already looking. So yeah. it's quite easy to sort of, Dave, uh, I've, I've got one for you. Do, do you want a 6,000 square foot unit? Oh, yes, Kev, mate, I'll have one. <laughs> and and it, it is as simple as that. It's knowing your market, isn't it? It's really getting under the skin. Yeah. It is. Um, but I think we're going to carry on with the, the new build just because we've got that momentum. We, we're focusing on a very, very small area. So I live in a place called Leon Solent, which is 
looks of the Isle of Wight and the, the site we developed on uh, recently is less than a mile away. The site's in Portland. Uh, it's about an 80 mile drive there, but we built loads of stuff down there. So it, it's all very, very close and compact. And even the site in Farnham that we built, it's only half an hour up the road, but we've got another site almost next door we're gonna build there. So you don't have to cast your net far and wide, just little areas become the, the, the person that knows about it the most, and then just focus on looking after your customers. Brilliant. So with, with you've mentioned education, great. And that happened maybe a wee bit later on, but you've had coming into developing industrial, what would you say are the kind of the bigger barriers or at least what you thought were bigger barriers actually getting into that type of space? Somebody was listening to this thinking, well, my area, my target area doesn't have enough industrial. It's maybe something I should look at. What, what do you think are barriers for people or indeed maybe not? Um, I don't think about barriers because they're things to push out of the way or jump over. So I tend to think what are the things you need to achieve what you want? So okay. actually, if you find an area where you think there's a good, good opportunity for employment space, then who? Just look at who might take the space. Is it all car dealers or uh, joiners and carpenters or whatever but just think about who because once you've got the who you can then sort of guess the price but then you look at the how and that's getting the right group of people so a good employer's agent qs somebody to line things up in the first place good architect not you probably don't need a brilliant planning consultant but it's just planning for employment place space is relatively simple because local authorities want employment space they don't want everything converted to flats. So planning is part of it, but not a, a, a difficult part. But having that right team is pretty simple. Um, yeah, so, so having that. But then the bit that makes it work is making sure you've got the right money in the right place at the right time. And one of the things I've learned over the last few years is, uh, I think, it, uh, did you do a podcast with Kevin Whelan? Yes. The things he talks about, there's so much money in the world. I never thought that. I thought there's my, <laughs> there's my money, and then the stuff I have to pay interest to borrow. But there's trillions of pounds of it, and using other people's money makes so much sense. I wish I'd known about it or thought about it ten years ago. Yeah, there's so much sloshing around. Yeah. Did you? And how did you find investors, private investors, Kevin? Was that something that you um, you you went out and did, or had you? Actually, some connections there. What What's your experience there? Never had private investors. Oh, okay. All, okay. all do it yourself. Um, <laughs> yeah, make it up as you go along. Cross your fingers and hope. It, it, <laughs> it's the way we do it. But I'm, I'm probably, I, I am very lucky because my background is in IT um, and there's lots of money in IT. So it gives you confidence that you look at numbers and you say, oh, yeah. There's abundancy. Yeah, yes. It, it, it's a big number. And if you're worried about it, knock a zero off. If you're still worried, knock another zero off. Then you look and think it's just a number. So the, the first development we did, I borrowed 1.4 million pounds. For goodness sake, talk about pushing your luck a bit. <laughs> it worked. Um, and it was just zeros. But the bank were willing to lend me the money because there was a business or, or an entity they, they yes. thought to afford it. And I think it's just having that confidence that I, I went to Nat West as well. Um, I need one and a half million quid. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm going to build some things with it. Is that all right? Yeah, that's fine. So I think big learning thing I think is have the confidence to go out and ask and I started with banks but I begun 
So on my phone, I now have a little list of people who I know want to invest in the things I'm doing because they've sort of said, oh, we've got our SaaS and there's a couple hundred thousand or, you know, I've got some money where we're interested. And I might go and ask for some money. But what's, what's been happening is I've also found borrowing money from development funders is so much easier now. Once you've got a few deals under your belt and yeah. there's a track record, it's really easy. So a um, year and a half ago, I've never, ever been approached by a funder who wants to come and see me. Normally, you have to crawl across broken glass to them and beg. But they came to see me and said, right, we've been looking at what you're doing. We quite like it. How do you want to do a deal? I said, well, from my point of view, I don't like all the hidden surprises. If we can have dealers 1% in, 1% a month, I can live with that. If you want 1% to get out of the deal, no. They haven't quite agreed to that. <laughs> so, so I think we're 1.5% in, 0.85% a month. But quite simple so quite a light touch not too complex but they know i've got the exit sorted out so yeah, did they did they see you through social media or did they see you through being local um it might possibly have been social media more likely they'd seen some things i'd done or they'd seen some planning applications for things they were funding for other people yeah and they just saw this name oh, let's give them a call you're, out in, you're in the swim. You're out there doing things and they've, yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Um, I had, I, I guess my, the next part of the question really is what's next? Have you, we spoke there a little bit about redeveloping older buildings and continuing with the industrial. Is there anything else on the horizon or other opportunities you're looking at? I'm trying to control it so that I just do things that are working and are fairly predictable because I, I, I have occasionally just exploded in a million and one directions. And, oh, I can do that and that and that. But I, I've learned, and this is over 40 years. So I, I just rein myself in. And what I'm now doing is where I see something interesting, I just park the idea and watch and wait. So two things I'm watching, three things I'm watching and waiting on are food, um, so drive-throughs, that sort of thing. I've got our first deal underway for one of those. It's, I can't remember whose podcast it was, but the Cloud Kitchens. Have you heard Cloud of that? Kitchens. Cloud Kitchens. I thought, what a really good idea. So rather than set up your own food brand, just have a whacking great kitchen. And I think Deliveroo are doing it now, actually. They are, yeah. Deliveroo. Dark, the dark Kitchens, they're called. Yeah. I think some in the States put $100 million into Cloud Kitchens. But just as an idea, that you just have yeah. a kitchen. Because... Somebody, in fact, it happened to one of our developments. Somebody came and said, we'd like to produce food in one of, one of your industrial units. I thought, it's quite big. And what they were going to do was bulk production of curry. No, it'll smell and upset everybody. <laughs> There'll be cars, or bikes and cars and driving around. It'll be traffic chaos. Now, if it's a brewery, I quite like the smell of beer being made. <laughs> I quite like curry as well, actually. But, but it just struck me that so epic scale production of food brings a whole new set of problems if you cram it in the middle of an industrial estate. But if you have a purpose-built building, that can work. Um, so drive-throughs, uh, cloud uh, kitchens, and some other things just involving repurposing buildings from yes. what they are, but something to, is that, that isn't immediately obvious because, um, just changing tech again, Recently, or two weekends ago, we did the most successful direct marketing I've ever done. 
So we, we've got this development we're doing. So we targeted people probably with a business link on Facebook within two miles of this clapped out building we're looking to redevelop. When we got to 19 pounds of expenditure on the Facebook inquiries, I thought I need to switch this off. <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to switch it off. So we, we, we spent the full 40 pounds on it, but I got 15 really good quality inquiries from people who needed something, but they were telling me what they needed. So I've now figured out how to format this building. So I said, right, okay, Sam, I know what you want. So this is your bit and right, Paul, I know what you need. You can have this bit down here. And I've suddenly met all these new people but for 40 quid of Facebook marketing. We used to spend 500 quid a month on Rightmove. So that's brilliant. Is yeah. the best bit of marketing I've done. And the thing about flexible space is having is, is being able to test the market and find out what they want. So then you can build to what they want or fit out Absolutely, rather yeah. than just going speculatively doing it and hoping that it's going to be right. Yeah. So it, it then makes it much safer for the redevelopment because you know who's going to go there. Whereas if yeah. you build a row of 12 identical size industrial units, what if they're all thousand square feet and people want bigger ones? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember going around a big shed once. I got shown a shed. Somebody was trying to sell. It'd be half developed. They hadn't quite finished it. Big square shed. So they put an atrium in the middle so they could have offices around the perimeter looking out and looking in. And every single one of them was the same size. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, what happens if a larger... What happens if not everybody wants a two-person office, you know? But sometimes people lose sight of it, don't they? I'm just looking at all the sketches on my desk. So... Um, the I think we're almost at the final design. So we've got the smallest unit is a 30 square meter office, and the biggest is a 580 square meter work well big workshop. Uh, there's a 70, uh, two 72 square meter workshops. That's because it's the building the, the unit is 12 meters wide, and the, the steel work is six meters, so 12 6 72. Yeah. So we've got all these different size units. But I wouldn't have known that without this colossal investment in Facebook of 40 quid. Yes. <laughs> but it's the best marketing money I've spent. Yeah. It just worked. Brilliant. Listen, there's a couple of things I want to just quickly nip back to some questions that I missed at the time. One was um, you mentioned about shifting the buildings once you develop them into the investment company. Have you set up a structure where that's in a group structure so you can move it over or are you actually selling it over what, what are you doing uh, there so we took another part of your team you need really good accountants for doing the bean counting but a good tax advisor as yeah. well so debbie is doing a brilliant job um, i've recommended to somebody else this, this week already but having the right structure so i think you've talked about devco opco propco something along those or yeah, yeah. so we started off just with a development company and that was called tide bank uk limited the only reason being our house was called Tide Bank because it was next to the water and there's some mud there. Tide Bank Limited had already been taken by somebody else, so it's our UK will do. So the pension is called the Tide Bank Pension. Um, I think we've got Tide Bank Limited is now the investment company and they're owned by Tide Bank Holdings Limited. So the holding company owns the, the development company and the investment company. Yeah. But because we've got that structure, which we're advised to do, that means we just transfer from one to the other at cost. Yes. Yeah. So very tax efficient, no SDLT. Um, yes, there's no, yeah, because you haven't sold it effectively. Yeah. So there's then, no stamp duty or then yep, put the profit into the investment company because 
you revalue the, the, the asset with a new balance sheet or the, the asset gets revalued to bump up the balance sheet, which then means you can borrow more money. Yeah. So, yeah. so that works out very well. Brilliant, um, okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask was something I'm sure people will be, be wondering is just what's your, what are you finding the average lease length is um, requested from occupiers these days? And what are you actually giving them? <laughs> it, it's changing quite a lot. So the uh, property we bought in 2012, I think, had the balance of a 41-year lease, and I, which which was fine until you get to the last year, last year, and then you think, oh dear, we've got a problem. And um, we prefer five to seven-year leases with a three or four-year break clause. A year or two ago, I was finding more people were asking five years is the maximum break at three. What started to change are some people are asking for longer leases. So there's a, a heads of terms working on uh, last year where the tenant filled in the term and the price, not me. Um, there's a particular price I was after and there's a particular term that I was comfortable with, but I left them blank. The tenant filled them in at a higher value than I thought for 20 years gee yeah days um so i, th I think it's changing um but I, I, I think anything where we've got a, a minimum of three years i'm quite comfortable with i think because we proactively manage our, our stock we don't have too many voids i think if you're a passive investor you will have long voids and uh, and i think that's a big problem so with the, a couple of people who give us mortgages they can see that we're, we're quite proactive and we don't get, get many voids. But I've also got um, a, a little secret card is for some tenants, we give them an option to buy, which, which is really good. So it means we can sell some stock if we need to. But what you find is that tenant treats the building as if it's their own. So the fit out they do is to a much higher standard than if they were a regular tenant because they've got the option to buy it they always pay their rent on time because our option to buy specifically says if you're late with the rent, the option falls away. Yeah. They had to pay for the option to buy, so they've got skin in the game. And that's working out really, really well. And then it's helped have some really good relationships with customers who've been able to expand and grow the business and their investment property. That's brilliant. So just quickly diving into that, they're giving you um, a fee for the option they're not necessarily giving you an increased rent or at least an allocation of rent towards the um, out. Yeah. Don't tell them that, no, don't let anybody know. And the option, is the option coming off the price at the end of the day or is that? The, the, the option price, we, we, we don't charge much. So it might be 2000 right. pounds okay. and we then credit that at, at, at the end. Yeah. Um, Great. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, that's becoming more and more of a thing in residential, isn't it? That um, yeah. rent to buy. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. But, okay. but it, it means that your, your tenants want to be there and they're looking after the building. Yep. And if another tenant is behaving badly, they tell you. Yep. So really, it, it's a good way of looking after the stock. Um, Great. Okay. So I just wanted you to just think about anybody else that's maybe a newbie out there. Is there anything else that you've learned? We spoke about asbestos and radioactivity. Was there anything else that was a mistake that cost you either time or money that would be a good lesson to pass on. Anything else that jumps into that's mind? A whole, that's a whole new podcast. <laughs> I, can give you a list of all this. I, I tend to be quite optimistic and tell people the good news. The complete disasters I shut up about. 
<laughs> my brain's got a good chance, uh, good, good way of just blanking those. Yes, forgetting it's, about it's them. Better. You just learn from it, but just park it. Expensive <laughs> way of learning. Um, but I, I, I think overall, one of the things I think I saw, particularly on the, the training thing I went on, was people overthink it. And you, you potentially run the risk of thinking for months and months and years and years and not doing something. There's a lot to be said for just getting stuck in because so long as you're determined, if you don't make money, but you do something, that's okay. If you don't, make, if you lose a bit, but you do something, okay, that's an expensive lesson. But if you just sit there and think and think and wait and wait and wait, nothing will happen. Yeah, the cost of inaction is actually really expensive. It, yeah. Yes. And, and not, I won't mention the training company, but I suspect half the people that's paid to go on their VIP course that they spent, well, in fact, I know there's one guy, I saw him walking around a park near where I live and he'd spent the money, 7,000 quid. And during the whole year, I didn't see him do anything. He had some ideas. A year later, my son was playing rugby. He was walking his dogs. Oh, how are you getting on? What have you done? Oh, well, we're still thinking of this. I think, oh, come on. Yeah. Come on. Um, so I think there is a risk of overthinking. Equally, there's a risk of going into something blind and making a complete cock up of it. So think, but maybe just don't overthink it. You've, you've also surrounded yourself with a good team. So, you, you know, as you've gone through this process, you've had good people there to give you advice. You don't always take it, of course, but you you you, you take it on balance, don't you, with everything else, because they don't always have the full picture. Well, it's, it's something I've seen there is some people are naturally more risk averse, so they'll tell you the, the risks they see. But actually, that's quite good. OK, you see those risks. I can deal with those. Fine. So you crack on anyway. Yeah. But also, they'll tell you risks that, you thought, I hadn't thought of that. Oh, I better deal with it. That's quite serious. So yeah. having the right people around, not, and ideally, nothing like you, because you could talk to yourself all day long and convince yourself of everything. It's all the other people who just calm things down, moderate it, guide you a little bit. Then you ignore them and just do what you want anyway. Kevin, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. You and I have uh, met each other through the podcast. Mm -hmm. And we bumped into each other on Clubhouse and I know you, you're spending a little bit of time on there. So maybe what we should do is just to wrap up is just to give people an idea of where they can study a little bit more of what you've done or indeed maybe could catch up with you somewhere. So the, your, your um, user handle at Clubhouse is Kevin Jones, isn't it? You were one of the early adopters and managed yes. to get Kevin Jones with no exclamation marks yeah. or pound signs or anything else or one, two, three next to it. Um, is tiebank.co.uk the, the right address for seeing some of your space? And Kevin at Tiebank, that, that's, that's me, you get to me. Um, the, if you look at the website, you'll also see there is a bank called Tide. So we've had to fend off thousands of calls a year. Of you. <laughs> because the bank called Tide doesn't have a customer service facility. So people are Googling like mad, oh, Tidebank, that'll do. So Sharon from the call centre we use has just sent me another message so e email's fine the number on the website is actually sharon in the call center um or you can find my email address i'm on linkedin everybody's on linkedin um but yeah one of the things i like doing is helping other people get to where they want to be and um, there's a um, good case recently a guy I was trying to do a jv with we were talking about how we put this deal together and i was guiding him along and he was saying yeah well, i really like this and yeah, if you'll give me this, I'll do that. And we're really, really close to having the deal sorted out. And he came back to me last week and said, somebody just offered me two million quid for a third of the site. I said, take the money, 
talk to Debbie, she'll tell you how to sort out. <laughs> That's the best deal you're going to get. So I think being able to work with people and help people, I, I just enjoy it. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on and helping um, our listeners and myself learning more about the industrial space. It's been really a great pleasure to have you on, Kevin. Thank you so much. And maybe we'll do another one in the future because there were a few topics there that we could maybe <laughs> dig into a little bit more. I appreciate you early on in our podcast. I just want to say this publicly. You, you, um, you were very kind to leave a review very early on when we were doing the podcast. I really appreciate that. Thanks. And all these reviews help. So if there's anyone else out there that would like to leave a review, please do. Please go on to the, onto your phone or wherever you're listening to us and just spend a couple of minutes just to leave a review because it really helps. It helps us reach out and meet new people. It helps the podcast become more visible for people and means that we can bring really interesting people like Kevin on the podcast to, to talk about different sectors. So thanks very much, Kevin. Really appreciate you coming on. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Take care. Brilliant. So um, to any listeners out there who would like any particular subjects discussed on the podcast, feel free to reach out and send us a message through all the usual places. You'll see the links in, in the notes, the show notes. I'll also put in Kevin's contact details in the show notes. And if you have any questions that you would like to ask in the Facebook group, all you've got to do is search up commercial property investor and that'll take you to the page. And then all you need to do is click on the button, answer a couple of questions and you can get into the group and then ask questions um, or indeed post some deals or anything that you have. So thanks very much for listening and we look forward to speaking to you all again next week. there i hope you're enjoying the content delivered on the cpi podcast even though it's free to listen to it actually takes quite a bit of time and financial commitment to deliver each and every episode did you know that by leaving a positive written review you yes you will have a direct impact on the visibility of the podcast and that's really important because by reaching a wider audience it helps our team to continually improve the overall content that we deliver to you week after week for some of you, leaving a review will be second nature, but for others, it might be your first one. Open your podcast app, pick the CPI podcast and search for previous reviews. And on iTunes in particular, click to look at all of the reviews and then you'll see an option to leave a written review. Go on, it'll only take two minutes and it'll really make our day. And we genuinely read every single one of them.